So friends, I don't know if you were listening um, earlier to the scripture being read. It's in the, uh, the chat on there from Matthew chapter 5 in our text tonight. Uh, Jesus is sitting on the side of, uh, of this hill. By the way, I'm Jason. If I don't know you, hi. Um, I work here. Okay, anyway. Uh, in our text tonight, Jesus is sitting on the side of this hill. He's teaching um, a crowd of folks and some other folks that he'd been doing some miracles among. Um, he's been teaching them about his kingdom, this kingdom which was coming into the world in and through Jesus, this kingdom which stands against the kingdoms of this world. It's a rival kingdom, a countercultural kingdom. It doesn't work in lockstep with the kingdoms of this world. They're, they're, they're rivals. The very way of life that Jesus is presenting to us is so different than the kingdoms uh, that, of this world that it requires a whole new perspective and a way of life for us. In our kingdoms, the rich are blessed. In Jesus' kingdom, so are the poor. In our kingdoms, uh, those who are happy are blessed. In Jesus' kingdom, so are those who mourn. In our kingdoms, we love those who love us. In Jesus' kingdom, people love even their enemies. And I want, I want to start here tonight because what I have to share with you tonight is uh, really hard. Uh, the reality of so much of this is really shameful. You see, in God's kingdom, we're naked and unashamed, but in the kingdoms of this world, nakedness brings about shame. And as you'll see tonight, when we begin to look honestly at our culture, uh, when we see it exposed or naked, so to speak, it's shameful. And I don't want any of us to be ashamed tonight. I want us to see that Jesus knows exactly the kind of world that we live in. He's speaking directly into this world, knowing exactly what it's like and showing us that there is another way. Because in our world, in this kingdom, human trafficking is the fastest growing criminal enterprise in the 21st century. $100 billion every year are profited from trafficking humans in the sex trade. Do you know that the average teen entering the sex trade is 12 to 14 years old? And we are uniquely part of the problem. While millions of people around the world are, are, uh, are being trafficked for all kinds of reasons, our State Department places the United States as one of the top three countries in the world as a place of origin for sex trafficking victims. And it's estimated that over a third of those victims are trafficked from members of their own family. This is the kingdom of the world that Jesus is speaking into. Because in this kingdom, when we prosecute against uh, the criminal sex trade, <laughs> uh, the women who are often forced into sexual acts are prosecuted way more often than the men who are forcing them into those acts or paying for them. In this kingdom, women who are prostitutes, and most of them are forced into it, are 240 times more likely to die than if they were in any other profession. Yes, you heard that right. They're 240 times more likely to die than if they were working in any other profession. In this kingdom, we talk about how important, right? We give lip service to this. We talk about how important it is to give everyone a voice and to see the dignity of each other, right? This is what we do. It's on our lips everywhere in our culture. It's, it's PC. While we give more money each year to the commercial sex trade than we do to the NFL, NHL, and MLB combined. In this kingdom, 33% of all searches for pornography were for teen porn. And pornography websites get more traffic each year than Twitter, Amazon, and Netflix combined. And while we're on Netflix, this summer a Netflix original porn movie was in the top three most watched movies for 24 straight days. 
This is the kingdom of the world that Jesus is speaking into. By now, I'm sure that many of you have heard um, the stats that are overwhelming and all in agreement that pornography rips apart marriages, that it decreases sexual satisfaction, and that it provides a lot of funding for the sex trade in the world. I'm sure a lot of you know that, but still, nearly every study that comes out places men at using pornography regularly at the 70 to 90th percent, uh, 70 to 90 percent of men use it regularly, and upwards of 50 percent of women are using it regularly. This is the kingdom of the world. This is the kind of world into which Jesus says, I have good news of another kingdom. One in which women are lifted up and not exploited. One in which those who mourn are comforted. One in which we are not run around enslaved to our desires. Those who have ears, let them hear. Repent. For grace upon grace, the kingdom of heaven has drawn near to you. As I say all this, friends, and as Jesus begins to reveal his kingdom in his teachings and in his life, I promise you Jesus is not trying to magnify your shame. He's offering you a different world in which to live. How many more statistics? How much more despair? How much more anxiety? How much more harm do you need to see? To be convinced that though this world and everyone in it are good by God's created design, that the ways of this world are not good. What more do you need to see that the kingdom of this world, the one that we perpetuate all the time, is not actually good and doesn't promote human flourishing? Even the way that we use our religious language is often so harmful. We've taken do not commit adultery, I shouldn't even put that in air quotes. It's like a real thing. Do not commit adultery. It's like 10, that's one of the Ten Commandments. Like this was intended to lift up sex and end marriages and to honor one another with our romantic desires. And instead, we often say something like, well, do not commit adultery. Well, at least I didn't sleep with her. As if that's good. We limit the commandment. We use religious language to justify harmful things that we do We use something like do not commit adultery and you hear the echo of the way in which it's been used for 2,000 years in that kind of statement. Well, at least I didn't blank with her. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at another person with lustful intent has already committed adultery in their heart. These are the words of Jesus. Jesus says, do not look, or anyone who looks at another person with lustful intent. I want to I wanna talk about lust for just a, for a moment, right? The lust is rooted in the idea of coveting something, right? Of desiring, when you covet something, you desire to possess something which isn't yours to possess. That's what coveting means. That I desire to possess something that isn't mine to possess. Either because like an outfit or a car or, or a particular life that somebody has, It's not mine. It's not mine to possess because it's not mine. It may be yours or somebody else's. And therefore, if I want to possess what you have, that's coveting. Or coveting could be desiring to possess something that shouldn't be possessed like a human being. And for a moment, can we just pause and agree that human beings should not be possessed by other human beings? Even my son and my daughters are not mine. 
Though I am their father, I must answer to God before his throne for how I treat them. I've been blessed with stewardship over them, with the Herculean task of raising adults that are image bearers of God. Like it's, it, it's awesome and it's, it's amazing. But I, I look at my son, and, my son and my daughters and I say, you are my son and my daughters in whom I am well pleased. And though you belong in our home and in our family and at our dinner table and in my heart and in the heart of God, you do not ultimately belong to me. Each of us belong to God. You see, coveting a human being means it's a desire to possess someone, and we don't, we don't possess other humans in this way. Lust is a particular kind of coveting. Lust is when I, I'm, I'm uh, desiring to possess an other human being to fulfill some sexual desire or romantic desire that I have. That would be lust, right? This is most naturally expressed. This is just a cliche or whatever, but like in the shameful sort of cliche of like a guy who like snaps his head around in his car to stare at a girl and populate his imagination with thoughts about her sexually. That's, that would be lust. But lust is also expressed in, in opening an app to browse because I'm lonely and I want to possess something or someone else to fulfill a romantic or sexual desire. Before I'd even opened the app, if I turn on my phone and I click on it in order to lust, in order to possess a person, an idea of a person, um, or in order to be possessed by a person in a way, to fulfill some kind of sexual or romantic desire, that is lust. Though Instagram is not like, for example, to my knowledge, full of explicit pornography, it might be, I don't think it is, but maybe it is, how many people in our culture use Instagram intentionally to fulfill romantic or sexual desires, to possess another or to have them possess you, to inflame lust. It's a good time to bring up Tinder or Bumble or whatever else. Somebody on, Kirsten was telling me about other apps on staff. I don't even want to mention in case you don't know about them. <laughs> so uh, I want to mention them to be culturally relevant, but I don't want to be culturally relevant in this arena. I want to be um, shrewd and wise as a serpent, but innocent as a dove. I want to be careful here because I do not know the sensitivities and the temptations that each one of us has joining this, right? Um, it, is, it is no, friend, it is no small task to find a romantic partner, okay? I know that. It's a high and noble task, but it is harrowing. And perhaps it is possible, I submit to you, it may be possible to set about discovering another human being to commit yourself to romantically on Tinder. It is possible, maybe. I only know that that is not the common story that I hear, okay? It is far more common that I hear of people using others and allowing themselves to be used by others on Tinder. That is the common story, way more than me actually haven't heard yet, maybe it happened, of people honoring each other romantically and sexually on Tinder. I wanna be careful though not to to create legalism here and say, for Christians, they can't use Tinder. Quite frankly, when it comes to something like lust and romantic and sexual desire, we all have different triggers and impulses. For some of us, engaging certain material with our eyes, with our hands, embodied, triggers temptations for us that for others of us, it doesn't. And so I want to be very careful not to legislate stuff for you. Some of you may know this story, some of you older students, but I remember my freshman year of college, I had to um, push uh, pause, I was going to say time out, but push, 
pause, I guess, whatever. On listening to R&B, um, I love New Edition. Most of you probably have no idea who New Edition is, but I love New Edition and a bunch of like the cult around New Edition. And, but what I found is that, that when I listened to this music, I would just desire romance so much. And I needed to pause on that. And I had a roommate who, who was of a, a very, uh, he was of a, a different faith, a different religion. Um, and he was very curious about this. He's, I just started following Jesus. And he was like, that's interesting. You stopped listening to, you started only listening to Christian music. Why are you also not watching only G and PG-13 movies or whatever, you know? Like, why used to watch R-rated movies? And it was really hard for me to explain to him that that's not really, I don't fight a lot of battles in watching those movies. I was fighting way more battles with the kind of music I was listening to. And I'm, tr- I'm just sharing that with you right now to say, like, each of us has different things. Like, I don't know what it is that when you look at it, it, it makes it hard for you not to lust. And it may be very different than the person sitting next to you right now. And unless you are in a community where you are honest and transparent, I don't even know if you're going to be that honest with yourself, friend. Um, so I'm glad for those of you that joined core groups. <laughs> anyway, I digress. None of this is in my notes. I got to move on. Okay. Um, maybe uh, you're not convinced that this stuff's, you know, um, that harmful. Maybe you think it's innocuous. Maybe you think lustful intent and looking is not a big deal, whatever. So let me just ask you a question. Listen to this. Should I, friends, be excited for my oldest daughter, who's right now, she's nine. Should I be excited for my oldest daughter to one day download and share images of herself on Tinder? Is that helpful? Jesus is taking the command of adultery and he's showing us what it's always been about the honoring of marriages and the honoring of others in our romantic and sexual relationships. In God's kingdom, no one is looking at pornography. In God's kingdom, men and women are liberated from their enslavement to passions. I commend to you, Roman, the end of Romans chapter seven, to to, to see uh, a Christian who's wrestling with the internal struggles with desires and sin patterns. In God's kingdom, we get liberated from these things we're enslaved to. In God's kingdom, citizens resist any desire which would bring harm to the dignity of another human being. In God's kingdom, my daughters are free and safe to walk down any alley in any city in the world and know that every woman and every man that they meet is upholding their dignity rather than objectifying them to satisfy their own romantic or sexual desires. Can you imagine? Friends, I want that world. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, I want to make a caveat here real quick. It's a really important one. Sexual desire is intrinsically good. Some of us have grown up in traditions where, you know, a parent has never talked to us about sex because it's dirty or shameful. I walk with couples in premarital counseling who, it's, it's strange. They, they've sort of thought of sex as bad their whole life, and then all of a sudden they had to flip a switch, and it's good in marriage, and, and I'm sorry that. That's not the way the Bible talks about sex. Matter of fact, this whole command, do not commit adultery, it's 10% of the 10 commandments. And it is about guarding the goodness of sex within the context of marriage and lifting it up so that it doesn't become something which induces shame and harm and pain and suffering and ultimately death in our world. Sex is intrinsically good. Sexual desire is intrinsically good. And we don't have time this evening to talk much about... um, sexual desire in marriage and marriage being intrinsically good. I only want to say that part of what is going on here in Jesus unpacking this, this command, do not commit adultery. Part of what's going on is he lifting up sex and marriage as good things, which ought to be honored and guarded. There's other sermons on our podcast. Where we've talked more about marriage and sex within the context of marriage. I think 
If you look up the one on Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, um, that's a good one probably on that. Uh, we don't have time to unpack that tonight. But what I do want to unpack is just a little, uh, or just a little, is the difference between the, a good sexual desire and lust. I think that's really relevant to this conversation and where you are in life. A, a, a good sexual desire and lust. And I want to offer you two quotes to help kind of drive this home. Uh, the first is from Frederick Dale Bruner, who is, who is penned by far my favorite Matthew commentary or, or commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. Um, I draw from it frequently because we're preaching on the Sermon on the Mount. You just need to know I'm taking lots of stuff from uh, Frederick Dale Bruner. If you're interested, uh, I'd be happy to share with you some of his thoughts. But here's, here's one quote that I want you to listen to. So check this out. Um, he says this, to look at an attractive person can be a drive given in creation to look at an attractive person. It can be a drive given in creation, just a given, the way God made us. To keep on looking, staring, that's a drive given in the fall from creation. Because all looking has a purpose. All looking has a purpose. And the looking that Jesus condemns here specifically is lustful looking, staring with the intent to possess or at least to burn the other person is no longer really a unique human being. She or he is now simply kindling, tinder, a thing. A way for one to enjoy oneself, to express oneself, to feel one's powerfulness. Jesus' concern is the human being and her or his valuation. Jesus' ethic, as we've already seen, even in the last couple of weeks in the Sermon on the Mount, is not, first of all, an ethic of, and this, this is the rival kingdoms of this world, friends, because listen, as, Jesus, as Dale Bruner says this about Jesus, listen to how counter this is to the kingdom of the world and the things you hear about self-fulfillment, self-actualization. You look out for you, self-care, self-love, all that stuff. Listen, Jesus' ethic is uh, not, first of all, of self-development or self-culture. It's an ethic of other honoring and of other protection, other-focused, flowing from the primary relationship of obedience to the God present in Jesus. If you want that quote, I'll send it to you. Just drop a line here. We'll message it to you. But do you see this? To see another human being and find them attractive is a fine thing. That's a, that's a normal thing. That's, that's just simply happens in this world. We find certain features or circumstances or attitudes in another human being attractive. That's woven into God's design for creation. Fine. It may be helpful to think of it this way. We posted it on Instagram yesterday. It's a quote from Martin Luther. Um, well, let me read that in just a second. Let me say a couple more things here first. Um, th think of the difference between a first look and a second look. Think of the difference between a glance and a stare. Think of the difference between, I don't really want you to imagine me doing this. This makes the whole thing weird. But I'm sitting down at dinner with my wife at a restaurant. If I notice that somebody else is attractive, whatever. Matter of fact, even my not looking a second time is one of the ways I might honor my wife and remind her that I, I'm not just with you because you're the only person I find attractive. I am with you because I choose you over and above everything else. In my marriage vows, I literally say, I forsake all others for you. And so even noticing someone else being attractive is an opportunity for me to love my wife. But have you ever been in a place where you see a guy who's obviously with another woman, like with a woman, but he's attending to another woman with his looks? And when has that ever looked honorable to either woman or the man? Think of the difference between a first look and a second look or a glance and a stare. I don't want you, friends, to feel ashamed 
for finding another human being attractive. If, as a matter of fact, if we honored one another and we didn't violate the way of Jesus, we lived in his kingdom, I really think we just simply give and receive that kind of attention with gratitude and with humble grace. Somebody might find me attractive and I go, thank you, you know, <laughs> whatever, you know. I might find somebody else attractive and not because I know that I'm not going to give in to lustful desires or intent, that I'm going to resist those things for the sake of honoring who I want to honor, who I ought to honor, that, that there never needs to be any angle, any pressure, any hook, any path. I just notice something I find attractive and that's it and I move on. Martin Luther, when talking about lust, said, this is the quote we posted on Instagram, you can't keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from nesting in your hair. Maybe that's helpful for you. Take that advice from 500 years ago. But do you see that difference? You can't keep them from flying over your head, but you can keep them from nesting in your hair. So you find somebody attractive, then what? If you look at them with the intention to lust, or by extension, if you're trying to get someone else to notice you with the intention being lust, you have already committed adultery in your heart. So what do we do? And Jesus' wisdom is incisive and thorough. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Uh, I, I'm just going to say this really emphatically. Like Jesus is not wanting his kingdom to be full of one-eyed people. Okay, that's not what he means practically. Matter of fact, there was this moment in the, in the 300s where a bunch of uh, church leaders from around the Mediterranean got together and emphatically said, hey, we just need to, to tell everybody that this is not, Jesus did not actually mean to gouge out your eye because there was some people that had started doing that. Um, that's not actually what he meant is to, is to gouge out. And if you think I'm not taking Jesus's words literally, I'm telling you I'm taking Jesus's words literally and I'm understanding Jesus in the context of his culture. And I'm not pridefully reading a 21st century lens, using a 21st century lens to read a 2,000-year-old text. Jesus was not telling everybody in the crowd, please start gouging out your eyes. What he is, he's using, what he is saying is using strong language to compassionately tell us that first, no half-hearted measure is going to work for this. No gradual slow dancing with this sin is going to change what's in our hearts. This will take decisive action. If your eye is causing you to sin, no small measure will do. And it's interesting, when I talk to men sometimes about addictions to pornography, and I'm like, brother, you're looking at your phone like every night looking at pornography, put your phone on the other side of the room before you go to bed. And it's, and it's interesting, this is, this is how much we struggle with our own desires. That even knowing that that will erode um, our, our sexual our sense of sexual satisfaction, satisfaction, even though that will make it more likely that we'll have a hard time finding sexual pleasure in marriage, even though, um, whatever, I'm contributing to all sorts of injustices in the world through this act. Putting my phone across the room, it almost seems impossible. And, and, and let's be honest, that's not because I'm so strong that I couldn't do that. That's because my, my muscles are so atrophied. My discipline's so atrophied. That, that, that if a guy tells me, I just won't look at it anymore, that won't work because I trust Jesus, not you, sucker. Jesus said, you gotta gouge out your eyes. Stop looking at what you're looking at. You're gonna have to do something drastic. And if it's not moving your phone across the room, get rid of your phone. And if that won't work, you get a beeper. Do people know what those are? Does anybody know what beepers are? That's, I had those when I was a kid. Anyway, whatever. Um, I digress. Let's move on. Um, 
that Jesus is, is telling us no half-hearted measures will work. Second, cutting off whatever habits and practices that we have grown comfortable with is going to hurt. And there's compassion in Jesus knowing this on the front end as he tells us this. When he says, gouge out your eye, part of what he's saying is this is going to hurt. It's a doctor saying, hey, this is going to hurt. There is grace in him telling us it's going to hurt. Jesus seems to honor us even in thinking that we can make the attempt, right? So whatever you're looking at that's leading you to commit adultery in your heart, look somewhere else quick and decisively. Whatever you're doing with your hands or wherever you're going with your feet that's leading you to lust and commit adultery in your heart or in practice, do something else with your hands. Go somewhere else with your feet. If the heart adultery is instigated by eye adultery, then work, then our work um, on our end starts with our eyes. Even if God begins to get to work on our hearts. Jesus doesn't say, um, he doesn't say, if you've looked at someone else with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery in your heart, therefore don't do anything. I'll do it. He says, gouge out your eye. He gives us work to do. Look somewhere else. Take your eye off the thing you've been looking at and look at something else. Friends, if you do not make it, if this is a struggle for you, like it's a struggle for 70 to 90% of men and over 50% of women, and those are just the ones reported, change will not happen unless you change behaviors. It just won't happen that way. Even as God is getting to work on us inside. Matter of fact, you won't even, he, this will help those of you for whom you're like, faith and works, man. For, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you're totally fine. But if you, it, for some of you, I just need to say this. You will not look at something else unless God has already begun to work on your heart. Good? Okay. Maybe, in the words of Bruner again, your pleasures and your personal independences seem harmless. But they are creating a world like the one I spoke about at the beginning of our talk tonight. And it's this actual world that we live in. This actual world that we live in has all of those stats and stories. And that, that's just one aspect of this world. One where millions of people are exploited and suffer and, and die for the sake of the sexual pleasure of others. Which kingdom do you want to be a part of? Which kind of world do you want to pass on to the next generation? What kind of world are my daughters going to see as they get older? And if when they look out in the world, they still see some of the same things we're seeing today, when they look at the church, or, or when I look at you, the church, are they going to see anything different? I hope so. By God's grace, I hope so. I hope by God's grace, his kingdom will come one day and reign over all the earth and every woman and every man will be dignified and honored. And, and right now, you and I have been invited to learn from our king how to live in his kingdom today. And so as we go home, with how we interact with each other this very evening, with what we watch with our eyes tonight, with what we do with our hands, with where we let our feet take us, this very evening, friends, know that God's grace and mercies are new for you every day. Every day. And by the power of his spirit, you can actually change. If you're struggling with addictions that you can't overcome, please seek help. Reach out to me or Kirsten or someone in leadership and we will confidentially get you help, okay? We, there will be zero shame. We are gonna be so grateful to God and so proud of you for asking for help. 
you might remember Jesus' words that he did not come for those who were well, but those who were sick. And his kingdom is specifically for you. He even kicks off this whole teaching on his kingdom by saying, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, those who feel like they have nothing to offer in God's kingdom because they've squandered it all. They never had it in the first place. You are get to be blessed in God's kingdom. So if you come to us, I swear to you, we will not magnify your shame. We will get you help however we can. We too know what it's like to ask for help as followers of Jesus. If you're wanting to get involved locally in fighting sex trafficking, there's a number of local organizations right here in Chattanooga doing great work. And tomorrow at 9.30, um, you're invited to join me if you want at Together Cafe. It's my new favorite spot. Uh, and coffee's on the house. I love getting to say that. Um, uh, we're gonna, um, I'm gonna sit down and talk with an alum of UTC and of the house uh, who uh, has gotten pretty involved in, in working and fighting against sex trafficking in the city. So if you're curious and wanna know kind of what's God doing in this city um, amongst his church, fighting against sex trafficking and ministering to victims of sex trafficking. Tomorrow at 9.30 at Together Cafe, I'd love to meet, to introduce you to somebody and, and some local organizations. Again, coffee's on the house. And if you can't make it, just shoot me a message and I'll connect you, okay? Um, all right, last thing is this. The kingdom of heaven is near, friends. It's near to us in Jesus Christ. And it's so good when I just lay out for you clearly the way of this, of this world and the way of the kingdom, can you not see that Jesus' kingdom is better? Maybe you don't believe it's possible, but do not tell me it's not better. It's good, and it brings honor and dignity to those who have none, and it liberates us from the myriad ways that we are enslaved. Jesus wants freedom for you, friend. And I pray that you consider the kind of king and the kind of kingdom presented to us in Jesus Christ, and that you say yes to him tonight, that we may be people who honor God's command to not commit adultery by not looking at anybody with the intention of lust. And even deeper, as we let that flower unfold and as we hear our teacher unfold the magisterial meaning of these commands, we hear him teach us that this command all along has meant to honor and dignify people seeking their good and their dignity and their honor in our romantic and sexual pursuits. What would it look like to live in that kind of world?